Welcome to Behind the Brand, the podcast where we delve deep into the stories and journeys of remarkable change makers and innovators behind some of Canada's most influential brands. I'm your host, Jeff Adamson, and today we have a truly exceptional guest with us. Dr. Mohamed Sawaf is a dynamic force in the world of finance, ethics, and innovation. With an impressive academic background and a diverse portfolio experience, Dr. Sawaf has dedicated his career to transforming the financial landscape and driving inclusive practices. As the founder and CEO of Manzil, a company focused on ethical conscious products and halal financing, Dr. Sawaf has been at the forefront of pioneering ethical finance solutions that empower communities while adhering to the principles of Islamic finance. His journey encompasses roles in academia, advisory boards, and impactful organizations, all working towards one common goal, financial inclusion. Today, we have the privilege of unraveling the story of Dr. Mohamed Sawaf, his passion for ethical finance, and the pivotal role he plays in shaping the future of financial inclusion in Canada and beyond. So I want to go way back here, and I was looking at at some of the work you've done, Mohammed. And you started out at Investors Group around 2007, 2009. What a great time to start! I was in Winnipeg, uh, in training, and Lehman Brothers was going down, and I was asking everybody, like, "Is is this bad?" <laughs> like, I, I, <laughs> I, I came with a degree in, in science, right? Like, I had a honors, bachelor's of life sciences from U of T. Yes, you know, I had some skills in math and maybe business, but had nothing to, to do with finance. And I was just like, what is going on? And that was a big lesson in risk, I can tell you. Like, tell me about that experience, though, because like, presumably you didn't yet have a client base or did you take over a book of business? No, I started from scratch. Yeah, very good question. Started from scratch. So as I built my book of business, I actually built it the right way, right? Uh, because of those lessons, right? So there was there was a lot of focus on the downside or or the risk element of, of of long-term wealth management and i actually built my practice around those sentiments versus like hey guys let's shoot for the moon and 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 get those double digit returns that everybody's promising you with and and presumably i mean that's what people always say like buy low sell high and when you're starting at basically the lowest point in the last like 10 or 20 years. I mean, that's in some ways, that's actually a good time to buy, but it was it difficult to convince people to buy basically in one of the worst markets of all time. Like, yeah. Tell me about some of the, some of the interactions and experiences you had there. Well, definitely there's a propensity for, for clients to kind of not make any move. Like we're creatures of habit at the end of the day. Right. So they don't want to make a move because that's risky in and of itself. Right. I have my existing relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, who are you? You're a 22 year old kid. How can you give me financial advice? So we actually we actually tailored our methods and focus around things that were factual versus more ad advisory. So we also, we always used to say like investments are a matter of advice and and tax are, are a matter of facts, right? So hey, why don't we put a plan together that actually saves you on tax? So maximizing your RSP maximizing TFSA, which started to come out at the time, uh, maybe looking at overall financial planning elements. So maybe it wasn't investment focused, but we would look at insurance and estate planning. Um, and of course, like your, your your debt planning, right? So whether it be your mortgage, your car, like refinancing, all of these things to kind of really focus on cash flow. And so the elements of, of investment and where those were going became less of an issue or, or, or lesser part of the discussion. And, and you moved from wealth management uh, into more you know, traditional banking with TD, but then you eventually decided to go back to school. 
how did some of your early experiences in wealth management really kind of direct or or influence your decision to kind of go back and get get more involved in kind of the education side of of finance? When I moved from Investors Group to TD, it was actually just uh, around the time that I had also finished my MBA. I was doing my MBA part-time at Rotman as a result of, number one, I think I wanted a formal education in finance, like it was, let's call it uh, seven years in. And number two, I, I started kind of hitting that corporate ceiling, right? You know, people around me were, were getting promoted. It wasn't due to the lack of production, right? Like I, I was one of the top kind of producers, not only at the level of, a, of an advisor, but also at the level of, of the director, right? Because I also managed kind of a team that had built around me. Uh, and so, you know, I, I basically said, well, let's get this MBA out of the way. Maybe that also kind of opens up new doors for me. And the interesting part is that MBA really was the start of my my journey into Menzel because during my time as an advisor, there was a lot of sentiment within the community around, hey, Mohammed, like we'd love to invest with you, but do you have products that are compliant for us? And, you know, that was one of their main criteria. And before I even knew anything about Islamic finance or even the, the particular products, uh, I, I needed to get an education around it. And that was more informal based on research and understanding kind of the global marketplace of, of halal banking because it wasn't really available in North America. And then I got into the MBA program and there was a professor there teaching an Islamic finance course. And so I had asked, I said, you know, is this actually part of the, the MBA offering uh, at the executive MBA? He's like, no, it's only actually for the full-time and part-times. But he said, you know what? I need a TA. Why don't you be, need that TA for me? I said, perfect, right? So we actually taught that course uh, over the next several years. And that actually introduced the foundation of not only Islamic finance for me, but whether we could customize those solutions under the realm of, you know, the Canadian regulatory environment, the tax and legal, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, frameworks that were already introduced. And so that was really the foundation that then allowed me to say, okay, well, this is potentially something that I can move forward with. He then convinced me to do a second master's in corporate governance and finance, which eventually led to my doctorate in Islamic finance. But along the way, uh, when I got into TD in more of a management role, and then, of course, coached by a fintech, all of those worlds started to collide, right? You know, the professional background, the skill sets, the academic background, because I had this, let's call it this, this mentality of, well, if I'm going to start a bank, something in banking, like that's a lot of money. That's a lot of intensive capital up front regulatory? Do I even have the experience in place? You know, we have an oligopolistic industry, like, but the fintech really opened my eyes to be like, wow, you with little capital, you can get kind of these very specific product licenses. And you can go out and, and, and do investments and mortgages and insurance, which we don't do currently, but we want to get into while kind of designing products that still apply to the current regulatory environment without having to lobby for those policy changes. Uh, the reason I'm interested in the education side is like, I used to work with a lot of people who had PhDs and masters and, and doing scientific research and, uh, or even industrial research or biotech. What I found is that it, it seemed like, and I'm not saying one causes the other, but it seemed like almost like a correlation between the more education someone got, the less entrepreneurial they seemed. I, I don't know if it's a case of just knowing too much because I think knowing almost too little makes it a lot easier to start things. Yeah. Because you, you can kind of just go in and if you knew what you knew four years in, 
you may not ever start, right? So how did, how was that process? Because you, you have like over a decade of education under you. I'm, I'm like feeling really, really not even worthy of this conversation, Mohammed, based on how much education you have. I have a bachelor's and I feel like that's not even enough right now. So how did you, how did you make the leap then? Like, how did you say, even though I know a ton about, you know, some broad areas and some specific areas that you're going to make that leap and start a company? Like what, what was the final straw that broke the camel's back on that? So I would say the, the entrepreneurialism or spirit was always there from the days of, of investors group, right? Like it was a hundred percent commission job. I, I was, I was thrown out into the wolf's den and just say, basically you, you, you eat what you kill, Right. Now we had a formal structure and a company behind us and, and mentorship and all that stuff that, that, that helped, right? So, so the sales, the BD, kind of the, the risk-taking element was there, but it was in a controlled environment. The education piece, and it's, and it's a very, very you know, interesting question that, that, and, and obviously theory that you pose, because I see it too, right? Like there's a sense of paralysis by analysis, right? There, there are lifelong learners out there and they'll never jump into a risk-taking endeavor just because of the comfort and the stability that they've grown up with or, or that just got comfort with that lifestyle. On my hand, you know, doing an MBA, um, I, I looked at, at that as a risk, right? Because I'm just like, well, what's the opportunity cost here, right? Like I'm, I was making good money, but there was also this element of kind of, I still have to constantly prove myself and not only myself, but I have to prove a lot of people wrong. Why did you feel that way though? Like what, what, what was driving that? Listen, finance is a, a world run by white men or, or waspy men. In my company, I was probably the first Middle Eastern or identifiably Middle Eastern individual, probably the first Muslim. I moved up really, really quickly. I, I became a director within less than three years. You know, I was the youngest at the time. Uh, so, you know, I always said to myself, like, if they're working 100%, I got to work 200% just to be equal. And I, I, and that was something I could control, right? I could control my work ethic. I could control my output. Then there became an element of, well, I started questioning leadership, right? And I'm like, well, why are these decisions being made? Because I'm on the field. I'm hearing something else. I think that we should be moving in this direction. But nobody wanted to listen to me, even though I had my CFP, I had all of the designations, right? But I just felt that maybe a life sciences degree didn't really kind of help create an image, right? And so I said, well, now that I'm, I, I want to be more involved in finance and really kind of more on, on, on larger impact style uh, missions, you know, education was really a big focus for me. So getting the MBA out of the way... I never thought I would go back to school, Jeff. Like I hated my undergrad. It, it like after doing a science degree, we had a thirty-five hours a week of labs, exams, and and two tutorials. It was it was horrendous, right? I was also working part time, right? It's not like we came from means. So for me, it was always just about like how can I make money? That's a real that's a real grind, constant grind. And so when I look back today, I really wanted to focus the element of my academia around what I'm doing today because I'm still involved in conversations or used to be involved in conversations before, you know, the, the doctor preceded my name of, well, you're just biased, right? You're, you're doing this business because you see an opportunity and we don't see the same opportunity that you do. Really? Yeah. So, so when I come at it from an academic perspective, 
it, they can no longer question that because I've done the research. And, and, and my dissertation was specifically focused on Canada. Did you find that these WASPy banks and organizations that weren't really listening to you, did that change much after you got more educated or did they just find another reason not to listen? So I would say a couple of elements. I think time allowed them to listen to me because I've been doing this now for quite some time. I have a business behind me that I can prove to them with track record. But did the business, I'm curious as to which, what do you think created the most paradigm shift in people's mind? Because I think and the reason I'm asking is there are a lot of people who also see things in the world where they're like, why isn't anyone listening to me about this? Yeah. Like, I think this is a huge problem and I can't get my point across here. So do I need to go and get a PhD? Do I need to start a company? Do I need to stage a rally? <laughs> like what to you, you know, was the most impactful in shifting people's perspective of what you have done? I would, I would definitely say the business because that's the proof in the pudding. Again, I have this chip on my shoulder to say I'm out here to prove people wrong and I'm still doing it. It doesn't matter whether I have a doctor or not, but, but, but the, the communication and the language that comes from me to them has shifted because my responses are based on facts now. My responses are based on research that has been done by third parties and not just myself, right? So, so I think there, it's a combination but I would say a lot of it, like like we now have financial institutions as partners, and that's not because of me. Yeah. It's because of the proof, right? That I've built a business, I've de-risked it. There are people actually using our products, and there is uh, a, a real real value to be had. Yeah, and I think, that, I mean, this is a good transition into in just Manzel in general. So h help our audience understand. So what is Manzel? What should people know about what Manzel's up to? I would say at its at its core, Menzel is a digital Islamic financial institution. We focus on not only manufacturing, right, halal products, and we can go into that, uh, products and services, but we distribute them directly uh, via our platform or through through others. You know, our focus has always been the 2 million Canadians uh, that identify as Muslims, but it doesn't mean that you have to be Muslim to be on our platform. Uh, you know, this is what we like to call an ethically based platform. It's different, you know, kind of like Neo, right? Like you guys are challenging the big banks and, and in your own way, and we're challenging them in, in our own way, right? Because there there is an underserved and underbanked Canadian population in general. Like it, it, there's anywhere between four to six million Canadians are underbanked or unbanked. And we're going after a, a, a subset of that, but it doesn't mean that our platform can't appeal to all of them. So, so what's the breadth of products that you offer? And I do want to double click on just the Sharia compliant halal products in general, just because like I grew up in a small town in Saskatchewan. This is not at all on my radar. I even confessed to you in, in, you know, when we were talking earlier, I was like, I'm going to know so little and I am embarrassed to really even reveal this to you. But I, I think there's a lot of people out there where it's just not on their radar at all. If I'm not aware or if I'm not putting enough effort in to understand all the different struggles or contexts that people are, are coming up through, especially when it comes to finance, then it's very difficult. And, and, and why this is important to us is we hope to be a prominent bank in Canada. I think just for me personally, the more I understand about how can we make our platform more inclusive? Um, how can we make it better for people from all walks of life? Especially given the fact that we also have just tons of newcomers coming to Canada as well. So I think not only I think is it ethical, but I think it also just makes business sense as well. So so maybe just go to the basics of of kind of halal products because I think that'll be a good way to start talking about like w which ones you offer. 
the main principle of Islamic finance is you, you can't pay or receive interest. And so how is interest made? I lend you money and you give me more money back, right? In, in its most simplest form. So you can't do that. So if you can't do that, how do you create structures or products that can actually create revenue or profit at the end of the day? And then uh, one of the, the other elements is introducing an asset. We have what we call, uh, you know, the Menzel Mortgage Program. So how do we how do we create a halal financing or mortgage program for residents residents in Canada for residential properties? There is a couple of of structures or, or there's few actually, but two that we like to utilize. And the first one is is super easy. Jeff, you know you're you're in you know Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and you say, hey, I like this house, I want to buy it. You know, obviously you would have come to us before. We would have pre-approved you, no different than what any other bank's underwriting criteria would have been. And then we say, okay, Jeff, you've identified this property. We are now going to go through a transaction that allows us to purchase this property on your behalf and immediately sell it back to you on the same day for a premium. So for example, you know, let's say it's $500,000 and we do our internal you know, profit rate calculation of like five and a half percent. And we say, okay, Jeff, over the next 25 years, you're going to make payments of $2,500 a month for 300 months, and that's going to accumulate to $750,000, right? And so hence, we've sold this property back to you for $750,000. You're essentially getting around interest bearing with charging fees on the actual purchase value of the house. Exactly. So I've, I, I haven't actually lent you any money in this transaction, if you don't list, right? We've bought the asset and we've resold it to you. And you, you've asked for an installment plan. So we've given you the convenience of an installment plan at a premium. So, okay, the first of many dumb questions are coming here, Mohammed. Why can't Muslims pay interest? That's a very good question. Because it's unfair. So, and, and money has no value. It really is a medium of exchange. We can lend you money, but it has to be one-to-one. -one. And there's, there's nothing in the Islamic economy or the Islamic financial world uh, that basically talks about, you know, time value of money you know, inflation, because when we look at the rudimentary system of Islamic finance, like I'm talking about 1400 years ago during the time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, they were dealing in dinars and dirhams. And these dinars were actually made out of gold and the dirhams were actually made out of silver. So an actual real commodity. Now it's fiat currency, it's it's paper. There There is no backing on these currencies today to say, well, there's real value here. So what do you have to do? You use the fiat currency to then purchase these assets. Now that you have a real asset, there is value that can be created out of that asset. But, but I guess it, even with fiat currencies, like they are backed, they're not backed by gold per se, but they're backed by the government. The government essentially says that this is worth something. Does that matter at all? It doesn't matter at all because these governments also print money whenever they want to, right? It's It's not like their ba their books are balanced. <laughs> you know, the, the the United States is three thirty three trillion dollars in debt. Canada is a hundred billion dollars in debt. Like, there's no fiscal responsibility here. So, like, for for Muslims that are looking at the amount of debt that Canada and the U.S. and many Western democracies are carrying, how do they look at that as as a kind of member of these societies, like to see the government who kind of controlled a lot of what we do and 
we pay taxes to, but then essentially those taxes go into, you know, paying down debt. Is that even on people's radar or are they just like, hey, that's up to them. They can do whatever they want. Or is it a real concern for, for Muslims in a different way than it would be for people who are not Muslim? Yeah, I, I would say less of a concern because they've come to this country knowing that there is a tax bill to be to be footed and we we get promised you know free healthcare and free education in return like that's the main promise right you know the 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 government doesn't come and say hey there's an exchange you know come to our country pay taxes so you can pay off our debt when you think about you know the mass amount of immigration that's coming into Canada as you had mentioned you know this mandate of 500,000 to a million apparently like it's it's up to upwards of a million we know that up to a third of, of those newcomers are coming from Muslim majority countries. So anywhere between 150,000 to 300,000, which bodes and ties well into uh, Statistics Canada's, you know, future projection of the Muslim population, which is now sits at 2 million, but will be 3 million by 2030, right? So how do you, how do you add another million? A lot of it's due to immigration. And of course, you know, we have above average birth rates as well. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, a lot, a lot of Canadians don't know this, but like, and I don't know for how long this has been happening, but Immigration Refugees Canada just released statistics from the last year, and 98% of our population growth came from net immigration. Yeah. 2% came from birth rates. So just to dig into a little bit further, because I, I saw some material on this, of course, we have an aging population, l lots of baby boomers, 300,000 deaths per year alone. And that doesn't include the, the emigration out of the country. Right. So, mm -hmm. so if you think about like, okay, we have 300,000 people dying already. Right. So even if we broaden 300,000, we're net zero. Yeah. Assuming no one leaves. Assuming no one leaves. Right. So then add, you know, the people that leave or whatever, 500,000, it still doesn't really make an impact at the end of the day. And plus, like, there's serious implications to a falling population, which maybe is a is a topic for another conversation. I, I, I want to touch on a, a dinar used to be made out of gold, and so how do these countries today do it? Are they still on kind of gold backed currencies, or have they switched to fiat currencies as well? They've all switched to fiat currencies because they have relationships with the U.S., especially because of their oil. So they they have their, their currencies are pegged, right? But from an, from a financial system, it's still considered, I would say, fiat. But you still have Islamic banks and conventional banks operating side by side within those jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. They're just introducing structures that are compliant, that work on, you know, this method that I spoke of previously, which is murabaha or a profit sale. There's also musharaka, which is, hey, Jeff, let's go into a partnership on a particular asset, right? And that could be a home mm -hmm. and I would act as a silent partner and you would buy me out over time and you'd still have, you know, the rights of ownership and all of that stuff. But I'm also, there's also an element of risk taking, right? So this is one of the main things of making a financial transaction fair is that it's it's not just one sided. And if you, if you happen to lose your job, I can't take advantage of you, right? Like I can't, you know, put you into default for no reason. Like I, I need to be working with you and saying, hey, Jeff, like, when are you going to get back on your feet? Maybe we'll defer a payment or two, but we'll only do it for so long at the end of the day. Yeah. And you know what? If you can't afford this house anymore, well, let's find something that's more affordable, right? So this is the element of humanity and, and compassion and empathy of banking yeah. that we don't have today that really needs to kind of come in. And what you're saying, like, no one could disagree with that. That should be the way that it should be done in terms of like, that's the ethical and moral way that you should approach someone who's down their luck and perhaps can't, you know, afford to pay you back. The reality that I see is that there are some people out there who make decisions freely 
and put themselves in situations or take advantage of others. So for example, like fraud mm-hmm. or basically charge-offs. It's a major line within any bank. And then unfortunately, there's just, there's bad people out there that will take advantage of the people providing the money as well. H- how do you manage things like risk and charge-offs and fraud in the halal setting, in the, in the halal context? You know, that's a great question. And I would say we, we, would, we manage it just like anyone else would, right? Like, and, and, and Islamic finance doesn't preclude you from saying, well, just because they decided to breach their contract doesn't mean that you, you don't have rights over them, right? We, we, in fact, absolutely have rights over them because we entered into a contractual agreement ethically and you decided to kind of break th- th- those ethics, right? So we go back to stats, we can go back to our book of business. We have a 0% default rate. Since 2020, you know, we're, we're almost four years in, we've gone through COVID, you know, we've gone through a pandemic, we've gone through a recession, we're still in a recession apparently. So, you know, as the economy on a macro level becomes more and more bleak, our underwriting and and the way we attract you know credit worthy individuals to our program has has been a hundred percent success rate with not even one mispayment and I think that mm-hmm. that holds true with many banks right because you know OSFI has has written these guidelines that we abide by even though we're not an OSFI you know regulated entity but when we want to attract institutional investment we have to act like them right? From an underwriting perspective, from a risk perspective, and also focusing on all of these issues around AML and FinTrack. Do you think that you guys would benefit from from OSFI stepping in and kind of officially regulating, or is it best that they kind of don't at this moment? Like, is that, there's pros and cons. There are pros and cons. I'll give you an example that came from the UK. So in 2003, the FCA or the Financial Conduct Authority actually created an Islamic banking framework, right? And this was due to political will from David Cameron prime minister at the time. He said, I want this. And, and they made it happen. And so what did that do? It opened up the door. So we can look at the pros. The pros means, you know, there's financial inclusion. We have optionality. We've created more competition in the marketplace. Um, and we, we get to attract a demographic that has a need, but we can also kind of expand on that. 40% of UK Islamic banks clients are non-Muslim, right? And that's a big number because at the end of the day, you know, you ask them like, what was it? And it's not the religious values. It's, you know, they gave me a better rate or, you know, it was just more ethical. You know, it appealed more to my values, right? Like these are some of the the elements um, that, that start to come out once you start to survey these individuals. And so in Canada, we're we're oligopolistic in many industries, right? We, you know, we can talk about this till the cows come home. Yeah, we love we love our oligopolies. Yeah, and and, and you know, it's all in the name of consumer protection, but it really isn't at the end of the day because you know the consumers are the ones that are missing out on competitive products being introduced in the marketplace. I focus my thesis on financial exclusion and not necessarily financial inclusion, right? Because financial inclusion is really about the the institutions creating products to to bring to to create inclusivity exclusion is really a set of population like us that have the ability to bank right we are bankable it's not like we're poor it's not like we're you know at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to income and and net worth but we actually choose not to participate and so these are these and there's been studies that have come out of the states that call that call these individuals ghost prime right they're prime but they're, they're, they're nowhere to be found. They're invisible. So how do you go after these individuals and say, hey, I have a product that aligns with your values, religious or non-religious, your ethics, your morality, 
come my way. And you know what, Jeff? It's been proven they're willing to pay a premium. They're willing to pay the penalties to get out of their existing conventional products in order to get into something more ethical. The pricing sensitivity is is way less than trying to go after a market in a zero-sum game today. You're, you're basically, I'm putting the pieces together here, Mohammed. You've got, you're appealing to a very targeted demographic of people. Like, you know who your customer is very, very clearly, like more clear than probably any financial services company in Canada in terms of how targeted and specific you are. These customers are profitable in terms of they're willing to pay for things, for different products that align with their values. So then presumably you would have companies just knocking on your door and saying like, hey, Muhammad, like, how do we partner up? How do we get into business together? How, how can we help make sure that every Muslim knows about Manzel and like, let's get you in every pamphlet for every newcomer who comes to Canada. Maybe let's even go to some of these countries and let people know about the options, like even before they come. How has that been going? It hasn't been going at all. <laughs> there's There's been many conversations. I can tell you I've spoken to probably every bank's newcomer program head that has had interest in this. But think of it from their end, right? And, and I tell them up front, I'm like, listen, guys, I'm not going to create a referral program, right? That ends up bringing newcomers your way and you pay me 50 or 100 bucks and you want to sell them on a credit card because they don't want a credit card. It's interest bearing or some sort of line of credit or personal loan. It doesn't work, right? So if we, if we want to partner, we need to partner on a real product or you, you, you make me an extension of your bank, right? So there's this concept of, Islamic windows. In the UK, when they introduced Islamic banking, banks like Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank and Dubai Islamic Bank came in and, and set up full-fledged banking systems and, and branches and all that stuff. Then you had Barclays and HSBC and Standard Charter say, well, we're a conventional bank, but we'd love to appeal to this community. What can we do? And all you have to do is create a subsidiary. You know, you, 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 you ring fence it in terms of the operations and kind of the flow of money. And you structure your products that appeal to this demographic group, right? And, and that's what we call an Islamic window. And, and we're happy to act as an Islamic window for these larger institutions, but they just don't see it like that. Time and time again, we've told them, like, why, why wouldn't you do it? And they look at it as a big capital cost, like lift. There's a learning curve in terms of experience. And that's fine. That's definitely our competitive advantage. That's the most that we've created currently. But I, I, don't, they, they, I don't think they've come to the conclusion that the best route to access this market is through us. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like it, it gets my, my, uh, my blood pressure up when I hear stories like this because it's this whole, I don't know, narrative that we see in today's society of people saying one thing in public, but then in private kind of saying like, no way, or, or with their voting hey, we, we need to protect the homeless. But then when you want to build a homeless shelter, they're like, not in my backyard. <laughs> hey, I want all these really good things for society, but I don't want them to impact my quality of life. You know, hey, we need to have schools for underprivileged, but I want to make sure that that's not in my neighborhood. I want to make sure that my kids all go to the rich school. So it's things like that where, yeah, we want to support newcomers to Canada. We're, you know, really pro-Muslim. But then when you're given an opportunity to work with, you know, an exciting entrepreneur like yourself, who's clearly solving a problem. Like this is the most well-defined problem that I've heard in a long time. They are not willing to really kind of walk the talk. You're absolutely right. And I've told this time and time again, like Canada, again, from an economic perspective, macro, micro, OECD, like we just got a report saying like our economy is going to stagnate until 2060. 
Okay, that's number one. It's not look, it's not looking good right now. We are the last G7 country to adopt Islamic finance, Islamic banking, like even behind Australia, which is much more conservative. And they have one fifth the Muslim population that we do. They only have 400,000 Muslims. We have 2 million. Like we're 5%. And so- And it's growing quick. And it's growing, right? Absolutely. And there is an element of political will here or lack thereof, right? Like, you know, if if Justin Trudeau or Christopher Freeland came in and said, we want this done, it would happen no matter what. We continually lobby the government and Senator Colin Deacon can attest to this, right? Like I know he was on your podcast. There is countless uh, times that, and we're, 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 we're lobbying at all levels, like provincial and federal, because there are some policy changes that are required uh, because it to make our, our product more competitive to our consumer base. Now, we do have a lopsided marketplace in the sense that demand exceeds supply. That's fine. But what happens when supply is, is always there and, and the demand starts to kind of wane off because of some of these policy changes that haven't been made, right? So we're trying to stay ahead of the curve and say, let's get these changes in now so that as the market expands, and as we expand our operations, we're ready, right, to capture that market versus saying, hey, guys, you know, we can't we can't be any more competitive because this law or this policy stops us from being so. Yeah. And I feel like, I don't know, Canada is the, really the only country that I've fully, fully lived in. So I've never really had to experience many other governments. But I feel like in Canada, we have a situation where, and again, maybe this is just politicians everywhere, but we're really good at like saying that we care about certain things. But when the rubber hits the road and when it, where they actually have to either put their neck out or they have to take a risk or you have to make a decision that has consequences, it seems like our, our you know, our government's haven't been really good at, at doing that. It's it's a CYA mentality. It's, it's which? CYA, cover your ass mentality. Yeah. Blend in with the herd. Don't stick your neck out. Yeah. And maybe it's a little bit of the tallest poppy syndrome. We're just afraid of, yeah, like of, of kind of doing something that is a little bit new or different. But like you, you see this in so many different things. Like we're not modernizing our country and like open banking was promised in like 2018. All lip service. Exactly. 100%. Real-time rails. Yeah. Like these are just basic things where it's like having our entire banking sector working on dial-up internet or having regulations so tight that no one really starts a bank since before the internet in Canada. This is not good for Canadians. And the answer isn't just introduce more regulatory action or like put more taxes on the big banks. Like that's just going to make things even more prohibitive for any new entrants to get in because they're going to look at it and say like, well, we don't want to be treated the same way those big banks are. And also big companies are really, really, really good at compliance. Yep. Small companies are just trying to like figure out what they want to be when they grow up. <laughs> so even the latest that uh, I don't know if you've heard, you probably have like Christian Freeland is now attacking the big banks and saying, oh, you need to introduce cheaper banking products like what bank accounts why why does it need to come from her like introduce a system right of competition and that'll automatically happen right <laughs> it, the people at the big five are probably just looking at them being like oh this is perfect they're like that's it they're like oh we get to like <laughs> we get to have this you know moat that we've been building for 200 years that is actually defended by the government and it you know, there we thought you were gonna like open up the gates. Yeah. All you all you're making us do is create like a, a free account. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> for for a small subset of the population, right? Newcomers or, or whoever, right? Like it's just it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So so what's the long term vision for Manzo? Like what what is your dream state that you want to get this company to? My dream state is is a fully fledged, you know, multi-product platform that includes core banking 
you know, financing, uh, wealth management, which we have already, but, you know, expanding all that. You know, there has been people say, hey, mom, like, would you actually want a bank license? And I'm like, I don't know if I can survive without one. Why would I want to involve myself in, in the additional compliance and, and capital requirements and all that and all the restrictions? Right. Like I'd, I'd, I'd rather I would rather jump on somebody else's license. Right. And let them deal with it. And you can be my back office and, and let me completely white label and, and go after this market. Right. Because that's what we're really good at doing right now. We have mortgages, we have, you know, wealth management or investments. We have a partnership with with Coho on, on the prepaid front. We have an estate planning solution called Menzel Wills, but we want to expand that into commercial financing and car financing. Uh, we want to get into core banking products like halal checkings and savings accounts and credit cards. So once we start to kind of build those out and, and we are lining those particular partners up to facilitate that, you know, we're happy. I, I think, right? Like that's that's a lot of products and, and and Canadians are unique, right? Like there's a lot of data around loyalty in banking. Less longer than mar marriages in Canada. 17 years, right? So that's number one that's going for us. Uh, but then of course you introduce a niche kind of system and a captive market, well, and, and zero competition. Does, does our lifetime value go into the 20 and 30 and 40 years? Potentially, yes, absolutely. It's also way more defensible. A lot of people maybe don't understand this, but like in order for the big banks to do anything, it's extraordinarily expensive. It's like turning the Titanic. There could be a pile of cash sitting on the ground. All the big bank would have to do is just lean down and pick it up, and they're not going to. It's not worth their time. And the, the cost of them bending over and doing something is so, so high. The banks spend more on just maintaining their archaic technology than all of the capital that all the startups raise collectively every year. Wow. That's how much they spend on just maintaining their systems. And these systems are from, they're written on 1950s code. <laughs> yeah. You know, Anna Zaidi was on the podcast and she was literally saying like, you, you have to find someone who's like retired in the 80s and get them to come out of retirement to work on these systems. And that's hilarious. Because like, it's just a, it's a dead coding language. And so the defensibility of your business is huge too, because it's very difficult for someone else to compete because they'd have to really redesign a lot of their systems to, you know, not be interest bearing, which in all of them are, everything is built around making money off of interest. Yeah, absolutely. Like as agile uh, as we were, it was a three-year R&D process with our Bay Street lawyers and advisors and accountants and auditors, right? If this had happened. So imagine at a larger scale, what that would take and the amount of decision-making and the bureaucracy and the, the changing of, of, of back offices, right? To accommodate such systems. And I think what's like, what's exciting to me about what you guys are doing, like, I'm just thinking through the life of someone who comes to Canada. First of all, that must be terrifying. I, I would expect like if I went over and lived in like Indonesia, it would probably be a bit of a culture shock. When I'm thinking through someone who comes here, you're like, and my wife's not from Canada, she's from Ukraine. You know, when she got here, you're just trying to figure shit out. Like you're just trying to do the basics. Like how do I get a phone? How do I get a bank account? Like how do I? Yeah. To layer on another le like layer of difficulty, and that you have to kind of find a bank that aligns with your values, and then potentially to be left hanging without any ability to really get a mortgage, to buy a home, to participate in home ownership, property ownership. I think is like something that so many millions of Canadians have benefited from over the decades. It's actually terrifying to me, like how much our economy is dependent on housing and like the middle class 
being supported by how like high housing prices and what that implications that it has for people who who can't afford a million dollar house in Toronto right now. But then to layer on, it's like not only are houses incredibly expensive, but there's also no option for you to buy one. So to like potentially put an entire class of people in a position where you're never going to be a landowner in the country that you've chosen, that seems really unethical to me. Let's extend on that. So Muslim home ownership participation is 50% less than the average Canadian. So let's just start there. So what are they doing? They're renting. Okay. So how long have you been renting? We have thousands of clients and we have 15,000 families on a wait list, which equates to about seven and a half billion dollars of required financing, like today, right? Like that's the immediate, like if you think about Tam Sam Psalm, like that's the Psalm right now. They've been renting for 10, 15, 20 years. Why? Because they've been saving up the difference in cash to use, to buy the house to buy the house fully in cash, Jeff. Yeah, outright. But, but but what's happened? The growth rate has superseded their savings rate. So now there's a gap that's required via financing, which they won't do traditionally. I have met professionals, doctors, lawyers, engineers, business owners that choose to rent because they want to align themselves with their faith rather than going into something that they consider sinful that could put them into hell in the afterlife, right? Uh, then homeownership. But then you also have this issue of like, well, you can't control sometimes where you live. Like lots of families are getting kicked out because, you know, there's too many kids in the house, right? Like, well, I don't want to rent to a family of six. Okay, well, you can't live here. Well, go find something somewhere else to live. What do you do at that Mm -hmm. point, right? So now you've, you've lost stability, right? You've lost kind of that family unit. You know, there was another study that came out and said the lifespans of Canadians are actually much more affected whether you are actually renting versus a homeowner than having cancer or smoking or, or drugs or alcohol. Imagine that. Yeah, that stress. Yeah, that stress of not owning your own home and the owner potentially taking power over you and saying like, and then I mean, this actually happened to my wife and I not that long ago, let, let the landlord wanted to get in on the housing market and said, okay, I'm going to sell the house. That's a real stress that millions of Canadians have. And you're totally right. I think it's one thing for people to complain, oh, hey, I can't afford the 10 to 20% down payment on my house. I feel like a lot of Muslims are, have got to be like, bro, you're worried about the 10 to 20%? How about 100%? Yeah. And then sitting there and then watching your savings grow, hey, fantastic. But then also watching the housing market grow and outpacing your savings rate and then kind of look at it and say, at this rate, you know, the home home price rate is, is growing faster than my savings rate. And so at this rate, I'm never going to ever own, own a home. Even the savings rate, Jeff, we're talking about cash only savings because they can't invest in GICs or low risk investments, which are all interest bearing. God. So now it just keeps getting harder. So now you're being forced to go into equities if you really wanted to, right? But you also have to have a long-term approach, right? The risk profile has to match. And most of the time it doesn't. When you're talking about, you know, people with the minimum 20% down payment that we require, our LTV, which we call FTV, finance to value ratio, actually sits at around 50%. So imagine these people are sitting on three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 worth of a down payment that they were setting aside to actually buy the house in cash for that much, but it's not. And now they've moved it into a down payment for their, for their first home. The economic impact of not being able to move this population from exclusion to inclusion is huge, right? Because there's cash sitting on the sidelines, uninvested in the economy, uninvested mm-hmm. in these banks where it, it could be reinvested. And, and there's a social impact piece. How many people that are renting 
shouldn't be renting. That should be moving into home ownership and freeing up rental stock for those that actually need it. And this is an example of, of a non-zero-sum game. And I love talking about these situations because for almost no cost to anyone, zero, you can create an enormous value for society. You can create another industry. Yeah. And and it's not like someone loses and and, and Muslims win. It's, it's, it's not like that at all. It's actually like literally everyone will win from these types of changes happening. For, first of all, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on and educating myself. And, and hopefully some of our listeners got as much out of this as I did. And this has really opened up my eyes and, and I think it's got my imagination going, which hopefully it gets other people's going too, because, you know, we want Canada to be a place where people feel welcomed and then they can pursue their dreams. And this is clearly a gap and it's a gap that can be addressed with not a lot of effort by not a lot of people. Right. But will benefit, you know, millions of people. I want to thank you for, for coming on and I'm grateful that, that you've kind of taken this up as your cause and because I think that Canada will be a much better place if you can achieve your mission. So thank you very much, Mohammed. You're most welcome and thank you for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Behind the Brand. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about Neo Financial, visit us at neofinancial.com. Behind the Brand is a production of Neo Financial and Media Lab YYC, hosted by Jeff Adamson. Strategy, research, and production by Keegan Sharp, Alana Tefelchuk, and Kyle Marshall.